This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Book Network. I'm Ronay Bakan, one of the hosts for a special series on Kurdish studies. And today I'm delighted to host Dr. David Loipod to talk about his remarkable book, Embattled Dreamland, The Politics of Contesting Armenian, Kurdish and Turkish Memory. Dr. David Leupold is a sociologist and a research fellow at the Leibniz Centrum Modern Orient Berlin. He was a 2018 and 19 Monoghian postdoctoral fellow in the University of Michigan, Department of Sociology, and holds a doctoral degree from the Humboldt University at Zoo Berlin. His research interests comprise contested geographies and the collective imaginations of past, present, and future in the post-Ottoman and post-Soviet space. The book subjected to this talk, Embattled Dreamlands, The Politics of Armenian, Kurdish and Turkish Memory, was also awarded the 2021 Annual Book Prize of Central Eurasian Studies Society. He is fluent, aside from his native language German, in English, Turkish, Persian, Armenian and Russian. Dr. David Lapold, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. And I wonder if you'd like to begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself first. Sure, thank you, with pleasure. Um, I was born right at the end of the Cold War into, I think, what we could describe a non-academic, typical lower middle class family. And I grew up in a small town right along the German-Czech border. It's only miles away from the former Iron Curtain. Um, before my compulsory military service, I had the chance to participate in a German-Turkish youth exchange program, which brought me to the western Turkish industrial town of Torbele, uh close to Izmir. Um, I was, from the very first moment, really mesmerized by both people, music, everything from grunge to arabesque and sanat music. And then, uh, yeah, just a year later, I found myself enrolled in Ottoman and Iranian studies, back then at the University of Bamberg. There, during an exchange year at the Egi University, Izmir, I had the chance to meet a Kurdish student with whom I became a very close friend, who turned out to be from a partially Islamized Syriac background. So in spring break, we had the chance then to travel together to both his hometown, Batman, as well as the cities of Mardin and Diyarbakir. So regions with substantial non-Muslim populations before the Armenian and the Syrian genocide a century ago. Um, I would say that, you know, retrospectively thinking back, that this formed somehow the point of departure for my personal and then ultimately also academic interest in the repressed histories 
and also contested geographies of um, the geography we refer to as Anatolia. So, yeah, I think over the following years, two scholars had a profound impact here on me. Um, one was the German sociologist Klaus Eder and his interest in collective mobilization, violence, and memory. And the other was the US Armenian or historian Ronald Sunni, whose decade long research on the fall of empires and the rise of nations extends likewise from the Soviet geography to the what we could refer to as the post Ottoman space. Thank you so much. Such a fascinating story. Um, let's talk a little bit about the book as well. So, Embattled Dreamlands is a fascinating book which sheds light on the conflictual nature of memory building in the age of nation state, broadly speaking. Um, could you elaborate a little bit about this conflictual relationship between nation building and memory building and the idea of embattled um, dreamlands that you are unpacking throughout your book. Yeah, sure. Um, I think this is a very important question. And uh, memory building on a state level or Geschichtspolitik, that is the politics of history, as we call it in German, um, I think it plays a crucial role in the whole process of nation-state building. Um, it is the realm where the nation and the nation-state is first imagined, and then, as we know, projected as a historical fact back into primordial history. So um, while national historiography claims to merely discover the nation as a historical fact, what it actually does here is, of course, a creative invention of the nation in a very modern sense, right? So here, memory regimes as... Um, resort to different tools of manipulation and silencing to achieve this goal. Facts that do not correspond to one's own national narrative are here sidelined, marginalized, and repressed. Um, this holds true, I think, virtually for all national narratives. For example, now turning more to the case, the Turkish narrative forgets not only the genocide as what Tane Akçam called the foundational crime of the Turkish Republic, but also how an amalgam of Muslim refugees from the Balkans and the Caucasus, Pomaks, Albanians, Bosniaks, Chechens, Udige, Abkhazians, were assimilated and blended into what then only retrospectively be known as a unified Türk Ulusu or um, Turkish nation. But of course, the same also holds true, I think, in an equal sense for the Armenian narrative. For I think it is only the massive influx of genocide survivors in 1915-1916 that really shifted the demographic balance in Caucasian Armenia that is corresponding to the present-day geography of Armenia in favor of a clear Armenian majority in demographic terms. So what has the Armenian narrative here to say about the mosques of Yerevan and its surroundings or the Muslim populations, both Kurds and Turkic speakers, that outnumbered Armenians in counties like Surmalo or Sharul Daralyaz, for instance. And when we turn to the Kurdish narrative, of course, here we have an open recognition of the Armenian genocide. But at the same time, can we really say that we fully already came to terms with the question of Ishtirak, that is, complicity of Kurds in the genocide? Well, whether that was backed by religious leaders or for personal economic gains, 
as for instance, scholars like Fred Eidenkaya note in the book Suchvil um, Tanch, uh, without Kurdish participation, it would have been impossible to cleanse Armenians from what we can refer to as Turkish Kurdistan. So accordingly, the past, if understood more in the sense of Walter Benjamin as a critical resource of knowledge, is, I think, still constantly haunting nation states and the acts of suppressing memory, accordingly, demands huge resources from them. Thank you so much. Um, in my opinion, one of the biggest strengths of this book is the great range of empirical material that you draw on uh, to trace the politics of contesting Armenian, Kurdish, and Turkish memory-building projects. And I wonder whether you can tell us about the research process on this highly contested um, area of study and what methods did you employ and what kind of challenges and unexpected discoveries did you encounter during this process, if at all? Yeah, thanks. Um, very much appreciated because um, I fully agree that the extensive field work that I conducted in both Armenia and Eastern Turkey, that is the extended Lake Van region, I think it really formed the backbone of this study. Um, having lived and studied previously in Turkey, I, as I mentioned, already did an exchange here at the Ege University, which was then followed up by an MA degree in social science at the Middle Eastern Technical University in Ankara. So I had already the chance living together with students from Turkey to acquire language proficiency in Turkish and also to a less extent in Kurmanji Kurdish. There was a Kurdish um, cultural center in Maltepe, Ankara. I'm not sure whether it still does exist where I took classes back then. Um, so in Turkey, I think my fieldwork uh, was in some sense... Um, easier from the very outset. However, politically it became more difficult because it, it coincided with the general elections of the year 2015. And thus the atmosphere was both somehow hopeful, but at the same time also very politically tense. And uh, I did not know it back then, but in retrospect, I had operated in a very narrow time window uh, because it was just months before the attack in Suruj and the subsequent full re-escalation of the conflict also in military terms, right? So just a few months later, I think my fieldwork would have been not only not possible, but I think entirely impossible to uh, implement in this form. So fieldwork in Armenia, on the other hand, I think it was more challenging from the very outset. I had no uh, <laughs> illusions about that. Uh, I had to learn Armenian within a very short time frame. And as my focus was the memory of the Lake Van region, a very important preliminary uh, element of my studies was to first locate Armenians descending from that area all across present-day Armenia. So here, local ethnographers um, proved incredibly helpful to me. And um, regarding methods, I think I found um, biographical narrative interviewing, as it is also um, developed and uh, proposed by the sociologist Fritz Schütze, to be particularly useful. Um, because here it focuses on really revealing the informants, what we call again in German, interne Bedeutungsstrukturen, that is the internal structures of meaning that we all employ to make sense of the imagined and experienced past that we refer to. 
regarding what kind of impressed me, of course, there were many things and it feels a bit now difficult to go back to those uh, years. But I think what really impressed me was what I maybe could call a porosity and the inner contradictions of those memory narratives. Um, for instance, I remember one instance, uh, we were sitting at Rakke and Meze at the evening in uh, Van, in the city of Van, and the Kurdish teacher first told me about the harmonious coexistence of both Armenians and Kurds in his village at the uh, southern shores of Lake Van, all before the genocide. But then when we slowly approach the question of 1915, this more harmonious story suddenly breaks off And he ends up telling me how, just minutes later, how the villagers threw Armenians off the cliffs to their deaths. So I think this actual traumatic and hard-to-digest truth here was not, and I think that's important, it was not that the first proposition, the harmonious coexistence, was false, and the second one was the true story. I think the, the real kind of traumatic kernel of this is that, as also scholars like Jan Gross, for example, showed in his book Neighbors on the Jewish Holocaust, The very hard to digest truth is that both propositions, so both the peaceful coexistence and the murderous violence that ensued, were both equally historically real. And I think we can see this, of course, unfortunately, repeating in global history in, for example, the dynamics of other conflicts. We can just think of the Bosnian War in the 1990s that really suddenly tore asunder the societal fabric that had held together this very multi-ethnic society in what had been Yugoslavia. So, yeah, I think that was for me one of like the maybe most kind of uh, impressive things that I did learn throughout that fieldwork. Thank you so much. Such a brilliant way to put it, the possibility of both peace and violence in our uh, histories. Um, so if we go into more detailed discussion uh, in chapter one, uh, Saving the Empire, Killing its Subject, you first lay out the history and causal relationship between the killing and mass expulsion of Muslims from Circassia in 1864 and 1867 by the Charist army and Armenian genocide in 1915 to 1918 by the Ottoman Empire. Um, Can you expand on this history a little bit more uh, for our audience and what you may consider as possible implications uh, of these histories in contemporary politics in the region, especially regarding like memory building and politics of memory? Yeah, thanks a lot, Rone. Um, well, exactly. I think I, I'm very happy that you specifically bring up this aspect of the study because I think it's a very crucial one. Uh, I think unlike other previous studies, I can claim that I do not understand the Armenian genocide here as a merely singular historical event. To already put it like this is, I think, uh, not making me many friends on the Armenian national side. But as you already saw in the previous responses, the work also didn't very much uh, set out to embrace any of the national strengths, neither the Kurdish nor the Turkish, obvious for obvious reasons. But um, what I see, and this is the thing that was revealed to me, I think, also during uh, the historical study um, that constituted an important part of my research, I think that every, that what we see in unfolding in the momentum of the Armenian genocide stands in a very longer continuity of mass violence that is at the intersection point 
from empire to nation state and that encompasses different empires, both the Ottoman Empire, but also, as I will talk now, the Tsarist Empire. Um, what is important here, and I think that's something that scholars like my mentor Ron Sunni is stressing often, empires did not simply leave the stage of history and left their space to the emerging nation states, because the problem is empires didn't know that they were determined, condemned to erasure by history. Instead, at that time, they tried to fashion themselves as kind of a new paradox forms that is ethno-national empires. This happened, of course, also with regard to other empires when we think of Habsburg. Um, of course, this brought empires at odds with their own multi-ethnic demographical structure. So the national empire was, from the very outset, I would say, an impossible dream. Populations different in religion or language were then seen by the waning empires as suspicious at best and outright treacherous at worst. The Tsarist Empire and its cleansing of its Muslim Adige and Ubih populations, known under the umbrella term of Circassians or Cherkesler, uh, from the Northern Caucasus and the Ottoman Empire and the destruction of its own Christian, Assyrian and Armenian communities, I want to show here, and this is what I stressed, it follows the same fat fatal logic. And this logic, by the way, I think it is not unique to imperial policies of the 19th, 20th century, but I think it perfectly also corresponds to what we see on an individual level when we turn to the arguments of Alfred Adler, one of the leading um, representatives of depth psychology, Tiefenpsychology. Um, by analogy, we can say states facing their own demise are equally plagued by a kind of nagging inferior complex that may at any point escalate into violent outbursts. And I think the wounds of this violence persist to this day. So responding to the question, what implication this has also to present day politics? Well, I think one uh, example that become uh, that has become very um, important, I think, over the last year was how memory played a crucial role in the wake of the war between Armenia and Azerbaijan on the region of Nagorno-Karabakh or Artsakh, how it is referred to in Armenian. Back then, the Armenian prime minister, for instance, Nikol Pashinyan, would emphatically evoke the genocide in order also to mobilize Armenian support in the war. He would refer to as Saim Nor Sadarapate, that is our new, this is our new Sadarapat, referring to the uh, Armenian battle during the Caucasus um, um, warfare in World War I. And he continues uh, here, I quote, They did not come just to conquer territories, villages or cities. Their goal is the Armenians. Their goal is to continue their policy of the Armenian genocide. End quote. So what we see here, we have new wars, we have uh, new territorial contestations, but we see at the same time how they are framed within uh, the historical uh, continuity of what happened exactly now, a century, a century or over a century ago. That is, everything that uh, happened was genuinely, and I think that's the, in the most interesting thing. I don't think that this was just only, um, let's say, um, political opportunism or pragmatic uh, or an, a pragmatic way of mobilizing uh, populations. I think that he honestly believed that the second genocide was looming uh, in uh, in the last Karabakh war. So I think that is a good way, I think, how we can see how the shadow that was cast by the violence that happened over a century ago is still informing the political reality we're living in today. 
Thank you so much. It really uh, seems like a strong historical approach like yours uh, will be leverage, leveraging our understanding of conflict today uh, in the region. Um, following up on that, um, in Chapter 2, Eternal Histories and Elusive Homelands, uh, you emphasize the interdependency between these conflicting narratives, um, between competing nationalism and memory building projects. And I was wondering whether you can elaborate more on this, like conflicting uh, narratives and their interdependency, especially in the context of one lake region. Yeah, of course. Um, like from the very outset, I was very curious to explore memory, not along this simplistic divide of victim and perpetrator that would be the kind of battles, the memory wars, as we call it, that unfold on the level of official memory politics in Armenia and Turkey. That was also something that I looked at within the framework of memory politics. I looked, for example, uh, how in some way the commemorations of the Armenian genocide at the cent at the centennial of the uh, of Aret in 2015 were somehow speaking to each other in a way to what was the Turkish blocking myth to it, that is the uh, commemoration of uh, the Çanakkale Zafiri, the victory at Gallipoli, which coincided this in the same year and it formed something like a blocking myth that is a counter-narrative that blocks out uh, what would be the other historical narrative that is that historical narrative of, uh, of mourning, of uh, commemoration of an event of mass killing, right? Um, but for me, it was always very interesting to look at it within this um, triangle that evades this clear-cut, um, any clear-cut binaries of victim-perpetrator that is ultimately understanding the, the thematic complex of 1915 in this triangle of the Armenian, Turkish, and Kurdish. I think it's something that is uh, very much um specifically at the forefront of more recent studies, I think, on 1915, both in historical terms, but also I think I think of different anthropological works that explore this also within the same framework. For that reason, I ultimately opted for um, uh, focusing on Van. Initially, I also had been thinking about uh, looking at uh, Ani, at Kars, at this area, because it was also a region that was of very important historical significance for uh, Armenians and also is located within present-day Turkey. But what I felt a bit missing was that actually places like um, Kars, Are, Ardahan, they are actually less contested, I think, when we think of present-day Turkish politics. That is, they are maybe at best something like a geographical periphery of an imagined Bakure Kurdistan or imagined northern Kurdistan. Um, thus, I was looking for a region that is of uh, significant relevance and had been for all three communities, that is, Armenians, Turks, and Kurds, over the last uh, centuries at best. So, um, and that re is a region, I think, the Lake Van region comprising um, the old um, provinces, the Ottoman provinces of both Bitlis and Van today. It is located, I think, at the nexus where an imagined Turkish, Armenian, and Kurdish homeland really geographically collide. 
for Armenians, there are, I think, two localities here which are of significant relevance. That is um, both um, Kars, which I mentioned, and the other, which had been uh, really also perceived as a kind of imagined capital of a to-be-freed uh, Western Armenia already in the late Ottoman period, that is uh, Van. And um, Van, of course, without going too much back into history, played a significant role in the Armenian kingdom of Vasporagan. But I think what's important is that today also, for when we think of um, the Kurdish uh, movement, both in political and also cultural terms, I think alongside what is regarded as the inofficial um, capital of an uh, imagined northern Kurdistan, that is for sure Ahmed Diyarbakir, I think Van is also of significant cultural relevance in the imaginary of um, the, the Turkish um the, the the region in, um, inhabited by Kurds in present-day Turkey. Um, that is, it is, I think, exactly the geographical site where Armenians, Kurds, and Turkish imaginations of a national homeland collide in, into one place. And or as my mentor Ronald Sunik uh, summed it up, I think uh, brilliantly in the foreword of uh, the book. Imagine geographies collide in the Van region. Western Armenia bleeds into northern Kurdistan, and both are assumed by Turks to be Turkey. So I think that is basically, in a nutshell, uh, why Van and what's uh, the significance in this work. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Thank you so much. It was brilliant to read about uh, this interdependency of competing nationalism while all of them kind of like claim to a sort of uniqueness. And I think it was really interesting to see in that way and see them like talking to one another and building each other. Um, so next question on chapter three, mirrored narratives. Um, you map out different strategies, namely narrating, silencing, performing, and renaming, mapping, um, in discerning how state and st state-like organizations employ a great range of resources to produce or reproduce their own interpretations of like national narrative. Um, so I was wondering whether you could talk a little bit more about how these strategies of remembering and forgetting have been historically mobilized in the one lake region uh, with reference to Armenian, Kurdish and Turkish case. Yeah, thanks a lot. I'm a bit afraid that I will a bit fall short of being able to fully uh, answer this question. But I think uh, I will be at least able to give you a bit of a glimpse uh, specifically with regard to two aspects that is specifically that of performing 
and mapping and its relevance with regard to the Lake Van region, uh, because I've partially already addressed the question of silencing. But uh, as in in the book, this is something that I discussed more on the larger level. That is on this, uh, on the official level. I was analyzing their school books, and here I was more capturing the overall narratives that encompass the whole of. Um, of Turkey and Armenia. However, with regard to performing and uh, also renaming of space, I specifically engage with the question of what does the landscape, the actual geography of the Lake Van region um, um, play, which role does it play, which space does it occupy in the narratives, in the national narratives uh, of both Armenians, Kurds and Turks. And I think the monumental landscapes plays a crucial role here in fostering national memory or collective memory in general. Uh, it's a process which has been described by scholars like Münkler, for example, as a Verdenkmalung of space, that is a monumentalization of space, that is mythical places which are not necessarily endowed Uh, a priori with any national meaning they become to be uh, to form centerpieces in a kind of in the mnemonic landscape of the nation that can be for example cemeteries or places of worship that come to be understood ex post as historical landmarks of the nation at the same time those buildings which are perceived as not fitting and i think that's the interesting part here which are perceived as jeopardizing as threatening to one's own narrative often end up to be erased. We see this with regard to different, I think, um, cases. We see this at, in the erasure, for example, of the historical remains of uh, rural Jewry in uh, Germany uh, um, during the Holocaust. We see this, of course, also with regard to the newly forming Uh, homogenizing ethno-national states on the Balkans. So I think there are different examples globally um, to which we can link this observation. So examples from the specific region of Lake Van, I think they're manifold. Maybe I suffice myself here with um, addressing briefly the question of cemeteries. And there I think it's interesting to th see that the cemeteries left by the Seljuk Turks in the town of Ahlat, north of Lake Van, how they are kind of framed by the Turkish Ministry of Culture. Uh, specifically, when you compare this, of course, to the like deafening silence when it comes to Armenian uh, or Yezidi cemeteries in the same region, uh, which have been rather deliberately demolished or left to decay, so what's interesting is that when we look at how the Seljuk Turkish cemeteries are framed, they are framed in this town, provincial town of Ahlat as a dome of Islam, like Kubetul Islam, or resort of the Turks, Tüklün Urakiri. And uh, at the same time, and that's the interesting part, right? On the one hand, we have these cemeteries that, that end up playing a crucial role in the international narrative. They become part of this monumental landscape. While at the same time, if they were most probably um, located in just a couple of kilometers across the border in Armenia or in Georgia, most probably they would have ended up um, with a fate um, that befell most Armenian cemeteries or Assyrian cemeteries in the Lake Van region. That is, they are, end up being perceived as irritating obstacles on the way towards inscribing a coherent na national narrative into the landscape and most probably would end up being removed. 
So, however, and I think that is maybe the most interesting part, we are really mistaken if we assume that demolition of a material legacy might analogically cause also its erasure in mnemonic terms, that is, things end up being forgotten. For often the names of places reminiscent of the so-called disappeared other, that is, populations that have been removed, populations that have been killed, communities that have been erased. The interesting thing is that they, the traces they actually leave behind. And I think one of the, let's say, maybe less uh, evident uh, trace that is not a material trace is to see how that even after a name-giving locality ceases to exist, that is, we have a destruction of a monastery, of a church, places might still be remembered in association with these specific historical localities. To give there another example that is more from the western side of the Lake Van region, uh, west of Mush, we have there the former Armenian monasteries of Shishhokovank and Mamgavank. And what's interesting is that when I was visiting those places together with some local um, um, colleagues, which were uh, roughly my own age, uh, so obviously uh, born many generations after 1915 and after the destruction of these um, historical buildings, they would still refer to this place as Tepe Adair. That is literally, if you translate it from uh, Kurdish, as the Church Hill. And even by the younger generation of the surrounding villages. And the same is also true for the former sites of Armenian cemeteries, which are often generally referred to as Zivia Falla, that is the field of the non-Muslim, or the Tepe Falla, the hill of the non-Muslim. So while disappeared populations can be written out of history textbooks quite with ease, um, as demonstrated, I think, in this discussion on, on uh, mapping and um, imagine inscribing the um, narrative into space, the erasure of these traces from the, from the actual mnemonic landscape proves to be a far more troublesome task than the mere physical erasure of these buildings. Thank you so much. Your book indeed pushes us to think about nation and memory building in concrete ways, um, rather than thinking such practice, such processes as just the result of certain abstract ideas. It's it's really fascinating. Um, Lastly, in chapter five, Entwined Narratives, uh, you go beyond the notion of collective memory building, uh, uh, collective memory as simply being national memory. And I found this really an interesting way to think about memory building projects. And you instead propose multi-collective memory as a novel approach in memory studies, as well as an alternative approach to understand and battle dreamlands in the region. And I was wondering whether you can explain further what you mean by multi-collective memory and how it is you think that unraveled in the region. Yeah, thanks a lot. I think this is really the question that lies at the heart of the book. And I also somehow have to critically um, 
of course, also assess the, the way how I my own am compelled to frame my research when I'm trying to introduce it, right? I mean, I myself always resort to um, speaking of Armenian, Kurdish, Turkish narratives, right? But because that is the kind of by convention, the way in which we normally tend to discuss these topics, uh, if it is not even at the more binary of the victim and perpetrator divide. So... But in reality, of course, and that is now a kind of truism, but I will try to ex to kind of uh, flesh that out more with also more contextual insight. Things are, of course, more complicated. Um, regarding social memory, I think an implicit understanding prevails that nations somehow form monolithic communities of collective memory, which is somehow interesting given the fact that um, the nation state and the ethnos as in effect has been rather deconstructed and as a general consensus. But I think that um, the idea of certain communities of collective memory, which I think really form uh, this very idea that we have co coherent communities of remembrance, I think that this is really the kernel that really underpins the national myth. But it is, I think, very often uh, reproduced in political speeches, journalistic articles, public debates, but also academic works. And I think that happens every time that we kind of either consciously or unconsciously evoke the idea, so let's see how this or that nation remembers, right? This is how, I mean, this is the things we constantly, I think, read when we just take a newspaper, right? Even if the intention of a given article might be good, right? This is how the Armenians cannot forget, the Turks remember. But what do we actually mean when we evoke, when we conjure up these collective uh, categories? So as I promised, I don't want to just confine myself with this kind of common postmodern truism of the boundaries are more fluid. Uh, of course, that is also true. But I think what I found more interesting in my own research was to work out or to try to sketch and work out a feasible alternative approach to social memory. And by doing this, I approached the cohorts of people that I interviewed on both sides of this warped wire fences that is on both Armenia and the Lake Van region as humans that relate to the same uh, shared but fragmented space. And here I wanted, in, in, instead of always uh, reproducing the idea of reconstructing as a so-called Armenian narrative, a so-called Kurdish narrative, a so-called Turkish narrative, I rather wanted to shift it a bit and look at two other uh, axes that form a kind of matrix through which I understand collective memory in the region. And that is, and this is very important, these four um, dimensions, four realms of memory, they are not exhaustive. I will also address the kind of shortcomings. Um, so the four dimensions that I specifically focused on was locality, temporality, ideology, and uh, genealogy. That is, I wanted to look at to which degree does um, socialization in particular family also the intergenerational micro-narrative of a given family affect the way how people uh, make sense of a past that is, of course, beyond their reach. We always invoke the notion of remembering, but actually it is most probably technically from a psychological perspective even wrong to speak of something like someone is remembering 1915. 
I think nowadays, if people do remember, it is a handful of 10 people. For the rest, that is us, it would be right to rather say that we narrate the past, right? So one thing is to look at this intergeneration aspect. The other thing was for me more like the kind of idea of uh, locality, that is to look at um, the whether uh, socialization in different areas, in rural areas, in urban areas, in Yerevan, in Gyumri. To which degree does this impact the way how people make sense uh, of the past? And ultimately, I think that's also something very interesting is, of course, the political worldview, right? And uh, to which degree does this Im uh, impact the way how people make sense of the past? And I think when we apply this uh, fourfold prism, we see that memory collectives permit, intersect with, and challenge the rigid categories of so-called national memory by itself. And it is actually through its very already form, not even through its content, but through its very form that they circumvent the national narratives. Because they, through their existence already, deny the very uh, existence of a coherent national um, people based on which uh, the national narrative bases its legitimacy. That is uh, to say, um, I think there was this interesting uh, kind of observation with regard to Lacan, where Zizek argues that the actual way of delegitimizing uh, nationalist leaders is not to show them that they are actually not leaders, but to show that the imagination based on which they build their political power is not in this form existent as a totalitarian entity. So remembering the individual is here not only confined to being ethnically Armenian, Kurdish, or Turkish, that is the thing that we would have on the national collective. At the same time, it is always, and I think more prevalently, characterized by being member of other non-national collectives. For example, are you a local or a newcomer in a specific role context? That has significant implications because it does matter in the narrative whether your relatives themselves were living in a Kurdish village during the Armenian genocide or whether we were actually relocated to this village after the village was cleared of Armenians or Assyrians. The question is also, which generation do you belong to? And with regard to this, I think that plays a specific role with regard to both the Armenian and the, uh, and the Kurdish um, side. That is, with regard to Armenia, it does play a role whether you belong to a generation socialized in the Soviet Union where serving alongside so-called Turks, as it referred to in Armenia, in the Soviet army, that is Azerbaijanis or Tatars uh, from Kazan uh, during your Soviet years in the army, whether you actually coexisted uh, with non-Armenians, Muslims uh, in Yerevan during the Soviet period, or whether you're already born into the actual destruction of the First Karabakh War. And on the other hand, I think in the, in the Kurdish case, we have also this intergenerational tension, I think, with specifically when it comes to the question, to which degree do we owe um, ourselves, to which degree do we, do we owe um, us uh, ourselves to either historical truth or to the honor of our um, predecessors. And I think there we have a very similar and kind of painful process that we have also with regard, or that we had uh, also with regard 
to the first uh, post-Holocaust generation in Germany, right? So this question of, okay, there's one thing to come to terms with an with a kind of um, historical event as an abstract entity. But to which degree is it really possible uh, to come to terms with the role one's own family members did play or did not play in the event? So I think that is also an important question. And then, of course, there's also the question of how do people uh, present day uh, relate to state authority in general? So how is how is the narrative about 1915 from, a, let's say, a Kurt who collaborated with Turkish authorities during the 90s, who is with someone that staunchly positions him, herself or himself against it. How does this impact also the way how people look through the prism of, for example, the warfare between the Turkish state and PKK in the 90s to how you make sense of what happened 100 years ago, right? So I think these are the kind of different um, prisms that uh, can shape and that can fundamentally alter the way how people that are perceived as part of one national group actually do make sense of a past that is beyond our direct um, like experiential exper um, access. So um, depending on one's own particularly collective routing, so each participant who was interviewed was compelled somehow to navigate her or his personal story in a field of tension made up by different and at times co uh, conflicting collective narratives. Because, I, and I think that's something that I really tried to stress throughout my work. When we talk, when we look at the way how we do remember and including how we do re-narrate uh, re uh, re historical narratives, and that I think applies to all of us, we, our single aim is not only to evoke um, a certain historical truth. That is also relevant. Of course, we believe that the stories we tell are true. But what is important is also that through the way we tell them, through the things that we stress through, and through the things we also omit, we try to also under, to underpin certain collective bonds with groups that we want to belong to, right? So, for example, um, if let's let's assume you um, you are a very faithful person in today, which links you also to the idea of an imagined religious community, but you find out that um, in a given historical um, event of violence, religious um, dignitaries actually played a crucial role in justifying collective violence up until horrendous murder. How can you position yourself? How can you, are you able to narrate this historical uh, event while at the same time being still able to maintain your collective bonds with a group that you want to belong to? So I, I think what is something, in my opinion, that has been uh, somehow Uh, always um, on an abstract level recognized in memory studies, but that has been not to the full extent been put into the focus is the question to what degree do the stories that we tell tell us about the world that we want to belong to and the world from which we want to also um, distinguish ourselves. Thank you so much. Uh, such a fascinating way to have uh, 
an understanding of this conflicting and like broad topics. Uh, well, Dr. Leopold, we have taken up a lot of your time. And before we say goodbye, could you talk a little bit about your current or future projects that you work on? Yeah, sure. Well, with pleasure. Um, together with the Heinrich Böll Foundation, uh, with the Yerevan office of the Heinrich Böll Foundation, we're currently actually in the process of translating the book into Armenian, and it's um, planned to be published still this year. Um, my, however, my new research con uh, continues to a certain extent, uh, while it continues to a certain extent uh, to explore the role of the past in the present, which I think that is really at the heart of my research over the last years. I somehow shift stronger my focus towards materiality and here urban materiality in particular. Um, and in this context, I'm looking at the legacy of socialist urbanity with a specific focus on Central Asia and the Caucasus. And here more specifically speaking alongside Armenia, which again will feature as a place uh, that I want to engage with more in my research, that also of Central Asian Republic of Kyrgyzstan. There, I look at socialist cities which were built towards another, a communist future, yet they find themselves somehow deadlocked in a different temporality that is, of course, the temporality of a post-utopian present or in what we could call an eternal dawn of capitalism. Um, so what I'm turning here is to the rich texture of the historical experience across a vast geography stretching from both Central Asia to Central Europe. For instance, I retraced the trajectory of a Czechoslovak a commune of internationalists who left their native home in Zilina, that is in present-day Slovakia, to form an Esperanto-speaking commune and build the first electrified district in Bishkek, Central Asia. I also want to look at the countess city envisioned by Mazmanyan and Gevor Kocha and other Armenian futurist architects in opposition to the socialism of so-called neo-Armenian Stalinist architecture in Yerevan. And I want to shed light on the fascinating joint project of a Russian-Georgian biologist and a Kyrgyz-Jewish philosopher to build an experimental eco-town in the vicinity of Soviet Moscow. So the guiding question here for my research is, how do the abandoned visions of the past speak to us? to us as the disillusioned, cynical citizens of the 21st century? I think that is my fundamental question for my upcoming research. Okay, thank you so much. I think, um, yeah, we are good to go. I'll just stop recording and save this, but can you just stay here?